This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey there, my name is Mark Tui, and uh, this is News Talk Today. I would love to get your thoughts on the breaking news this morning that uh, women's NBA star Brittany Griner has been released from Russian custody in a very high-profile prisoner swap between the U.S. and Moscow. Earlier this morning, President uh, Joe Biden told the world that Griner was safe and on a plane headed home from the United Arab Emirates. Moments ago, standing together with her wife, Sherelle, uh, in the Oval Office, I spoke with Brittany Griner. She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. So she was released in a prisoner swap negotiated between the United States and Russia. What did Russia get out of the deal? Well, they got back Victor Boot, who has been held in American prison for 12 years. His nickname, the Merchant of Death. He is a notorious arms dealer who sold weapons to warlords and rogue governments, becoming one of the world's most wanted men. The United States gets back a so-so WNBA athlete who works in the offseason for a Russian women's basketball team where she makes apparently five times as much as she does in the WNBA. Well, there's a problem. Uh, but she was arrested on allegations that she had a vape containing an illicit substance in her baggage when she returned uh, to Moscow uh, in order to take up her duties with the Russian team. She was arrested. She pled guilty. She was sentenced to a very long term in a prison camp with hard labor. So the United States gets a woman's basketball athlete back and Russia gets a notorious arms dealer, the merchant of death. Is that a good deal? <laughs> like who got the better part of that deal? 1-855-633-1010. I think we kind of set a bad precedent when we negotiate for prisoners, but I'm kind of glad, you know, if I was her or if I was arrested, I would love my government to take an interest in trying to get me out of a horrible place. One eight five five six three three ten ten. Was this a good deal, or did we just set up the guarantee that this is going to keep happening, and we are going to give back horrible, awful people in exchange for pretty good people that were just, in many cases, like Canada's two Michaels, arrested on trumped-up charges specifically to give, in that case, China, in this case, Russia, a hostage to trade for somebody evil. We love to take your thoughts. Coming up uh, after the break, we're going to talk with Declan Hill, an investigative uh, academic and journalist uh, who specializes in the study of organized crime, international issues, and international sports about the Brittany Griner case and whether or not this was a good deal or a bad deal. It's hard to believe that there was anything good about this, but they've been working on it for a long time. Tony, if we could have clip number two, President Joe Biden explaining how they worked to get her free. We never stopped pushing for her release. It took painstaking and intense negotiations, and I want to thank 
all the hardworking public servants across my administration who worked tirelessly to secure her release. They were trying to get another American out. Uh, former Marine Paul Whelan uh, has been imprisoned in Russia for more than three years, but he was not part of this. The Russians wouldn't agree to give him up. They wanted The Americans wanted the two-for-one deal. Uh, the uh, Russians said no way. And his case, uh, Mr. Whelan's a bit more complicated. He was charged with espionage. He's got a career in the military. He was working in corporate security. So maybe a little bit more complex, that particular issue. Uh, let's go to the phone lines at 855-633-1010. Ron, good deal or bad deal? It's the worst deal ever. How so? <laughs> well, because you're trading a kingpin for, for basically a petty criminal. I mean, this guy is going to cause more... He's an arms dealer. He's going he's gonna to go back to what he was doing. It's going to cause more trouble in 20 years than it's going to solve. Trouble for whom? Trouble for anybody he sells arms to, to, to the people who are going to be affected by that. Yeah, do you think he'll be back in business pretty quickly? Oh, yeah. He'll be back in business tomorrow as soon as he lands. I think it's kind of interesting that the Russians wanted him back. Well, they don't care. He's, he's, he's one of Putin's guys. I mean, if Putin, if Putin cared, he wouldn't be in the Ukraine. There you go. Thanks very much, Ron. Let's go to North York and talk with Mike. Good deal or bad deal? Hey there. Uh, I had originally told your screener that I agreed with the swap, but uh, having given it a little bit more consideration, I, I think that it's a bad deal. Why? Because my original thought was that a government looking out for their own citizens is good because obviously they got to get their they got to protect their citizens but the swap doesn't make any sense here especially when you got a marine who's still living in russia so what about the average citizen are they only looking out for her because she's a celebrity they're not giving the same level of credit to anyone else yeah i think there's a there's an element of that in there thanks very much uh, mike i mean my takeaway is before i go to russia or china i better become real famous uh, because I want somebody to fight for me the way the Americans fought for Brittany Griner, because the two run-of-the-mill uh, Canadian uh, Michaels uh, didn't really get a whole lot of support from the Canadian government in China, did they? Judy in Montreal, is this a good deal or a bad deal? Yeah, very bad deal, because uh, Paul Whelan, I think, was much more important. Why? Because <laughs> he's a Marine. He was a Marine. Uh, I was working in corporate security when he was arrested. But I suppose, I mean, there's the very real possibility, Judy, that he was actually engaged in some form of espionage. We have no evidence of that. We don't know. But definitely, uh, just because she's a celebrity, come on, it, it's too much. And she had drugs. It doesn't matter what. She should have known much better than to take uh, cannabis oil with her. Thanks, Judy. I appreciate your call. Yeah, that's what she was charged with. She pled guilty to that. But let's be honest, uh, often people plead guilty in order to get a reduced sentence, whether or not they actually committed the crime. And certainly in Russia, that might very well have been the case. Uh, maybe we'll find out in the future. Maybe we won't. Uh, let's go to Ken in uh, Waterdown, Ontario. Is this a good deal or a bad deal? <laughs> it's a ridiculous deal. It, it doesn't even make sense. It's the most lopsided deal you could ever think of. How so? International spy convicted, convicted of espionage and somebody who had some pot. And it's all for the optics. It's all for the uh, whatever identity politics down there in the U.S. But to me, is this a true prison 
prisoner swap? Like, is she going to go to jail along with 40,000 other people in the U.S. who have been convicted of a similar crime to her who are now in jail, in prisons, rotting? Well, that, that's an interesting can, question. You can a ball through a hoop. That's an interesting question because we quite often will allow uh, Canadians imprisoned in other countries to come back to Canada uh, to serve their sentences here, sometimes in exchange for you know similar consideration going the other direction. But I don't right. think Brittany Griner is going to spend another day in an American jail, nor do I think that uh, the merchant of death is going to yeah. spend any time in a Russian jail. Do you? Uh, no, I don't. I don't. But that's the thing. Like, that's kind of the broader issue when you look in the U.S. And because it is a federal, whatever they call it, Schedule One uh, drug, uh, it, all those people, mostly people of color in prisons, rotting away in jail, but because she can chuck a ball through a hoop and has a little bit of notoriety, she gets a free pass. It's just it's wrong, period. Good points. Thanks very much, Ken. I appreciate that. Lots of people uh, still calling in. We might come back to this topic a little bit later in the hour to get more of your thoughts, specifically on whether or not this just sets a bad precedent. I mean, should government, we often say we don't negotiate with terrorists. Well, should we, uh, you know, make prisoner trades for terrorists uh, just in order to get our our own people back? Maybe that opens the door to just being set up for more and more Canadians, more and more Americans to be taken uh, basically prisoner and held on trumped up charges. When we come back on News Talk today, we're going to talk with Declan Hill. He's an investigative academic and a journalist, specializes in exactly these topics. Get his take on the Brittany Griner swap. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. We heard from uh, President Joe Biden this morning that uh, Women's National Basketball Association star Brittany Griner has been released in a negotiated prisoner exchange between Russia and the United States. The two uh, prisoners were exchanged. I'm envisioning a Cold War kind of prisoner swap on a on a foggy bridge somewhere in Dubai. I don't know whether they have fog in Dubai. I've been to Dubai. I never saw fog. Too hot for fog anytime I was ever there. Uh, but uh, anyway, Brittany Griner on an airplane on her way home to the United States, obviously chuffed that she has been set free after being convicted and sentenced to, you know, I think it was a decade almost in labor camp, a prison in Russia. Uh, in exchange for her, uh, the Russians got back the merchant of death, Victor Buk, who is uh, uh, basically an arms dealer, convicted uh, uh, arms dealer in the United States, uh, had been serving uh, time in prison there. Uh, why would the Russians want him back? I don't know. So let's uh, talk. We heard your uh, verdict. None of you thought this was a good deal. Let's uh, ask uh, somebody who has some expert uh, knowledge of this situation and others like it. Declan Hill is an investigative academic and journalist specializing in the study of organized crime, international issues, and international sport. Uh, Declan, welcome to News Talk Today. 
Hey, thanks, brother. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so uh, some of our listeners were suggesting uh, that, you know, the U.S. maybe should have held out for a more important prisoner or insisted on getting uh, Paul Whelan uh, as a two-for-one deal because he was, uh, you know, more important uh, than Brittany Griner. But on the other hand, the, the, the such minor nature of, you know, from our perspective here in the West, of uh, Brittany Griner's uh, alleged crime suggests, you know, maybe, you know, because she's, if you will, more innocent, uh, maybe she should have been the uh, priority. And as she was the priority uh, person to be exchanged, was this a good deal for the United States and, and the West? Uh, look, it's not an NHL hockey thing. It's what <laughs> it's what's practical. And the problem with the uh, situation was there was so much publicity around a basketball star compared to a former Marine. Uh, it was always going to be difficult to do a two-for-one swap. I, I think what, what's really important here is the symbolic nature of these prisoners. I think the Americans have shown what is important to them, which is a minor celebrity, a sports person. Uh, and I think the Russians are signaling to their people, we're going to back you. You may be put in jail 10 years ago, but we're still going to reach out and get you out of jail. So it's worth fighting for us because we're going to back our people. And I think that's a strong contrast with the Canadian government. I think all our listeners uh, should be contrasting this with the treatment of the two Michaels, where Canadian parliamentarians are swanning off on their little trips to China months after these guys were thrown in jail on absolutely no um, you know, serious charges, absolute nonsense. So I think America and Russia have done their deal. Uh, they've done it you know, honorably, whatever, they've got their people out. And I think uh, Canadians should be looking at their own government saying, hey, you know, if we're ever in trouble in a foreign country, they're not going to help us. There must be uh, legions of Russians in foreign prisons. Uh, why did they want this uh, arms dealer back in Russia? Because he was one of their people. He was one of the military-industrial complex. And uh, Putin has shown very clearly that they've got a long memory. I mean, this is this goes, dates back to the Soviet Union. It dates back to the KGB training that Putin had. They get their people out. And that's, that's the key thing. And if you want loyalty, if you want dedication from your spies, from your arms trafficker, from anybody inside that military-industrial complex, you'd better be sending signals that we're going to get you out, whether it's a decade after you've been arrested or whatever. And if you turn against us, we're going to track you down and we're going to kill you, which is what he's done to a number of former NVDA FSB defectors. So it's sending a signal of, of this loyalty to their people. Um, I would debate as well any of our listeners um, in terms of Victor Boots. That's the name of this convicted arms trafficker. Um, you know, I, I think we, we could do an entire program, you and I, about the Western arms trafficking in current-day Ukraine. I worry, as you do and many of our listeners do, about the arms that we're shipping over to Ukraine. We have no controls on them. Uh, I worry that we're going to have another Afghanistan situation with all kinds of arms being trafficked around the world from there. I, that's not, I know, the issue of today's uh, interview, but I think it's worth our listeners bearing in mind. Does this type of uh, tit-for-tat exchange of uh, prisoners uh, set a bad precedent that might put other Canadians, other Americans, other Western citizens at risk when they travel to places like Russia and China? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, the Chinese government and the Russian government are best understood as organized crime syndicates. If you think about them as civilized um, governments, 
uh, you're wasting your time. Think rather of them as, you know, capos with uh, organized crime, uh, morals, uh, and motives. And we saw this in, you know, with the Huawei thing and the two Michaels. Uh, the Communist Party in China is a bunch of goons, and they're just going to arrest innocent people, throw them in jail, and use them as diplomatic tokens and, and bargaining tools. The other thing I think is worth looking at is the rise, the really exponential rise in the last 10 years of the power and influence of these small Middle Eastern states like uh, United Arab Emirates, you know, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Qatar, where the World Cup is happening. Um, you know, these things, these, these, these small states are really the checkpoint Charlie of this generation. And for those of people who are under 40, checkpoint Charlie was the, was the, the, the center of exchanges between uh, the Soviet Empire and the West right at the heart of Berlin during the Cold War. I think that shifted to these small Gulf states and really, as you know, you know, having visited there, they're, they're, they're full of mafiosi, they're full of organized crime guys, they're full of money launderers, they're full of spies, Mossad agents. It's where the Taliban-Trump Trump regime negotiations took place. And it's clearly where the negotiations between Russian and American diplomats took place for this prisoner exchange. Uh, Declan Hill, should the, we've talked a, a lot about, uh, not you and I, but in general, about Canada's changing relationship with uh, states like China. Hopefully also, I think it's happening with Russia. But is Canada particularly badly served in its ability to protect citizens abroad? Because we'd have this naive perhaps view or idealistic view of our justice system as being totally divorced from politics. And uh, when you look at, uh, you know, the two Michaels uh, situation, whoa, well, we couldn't intercede to allow a, a Chinese woman to go back to China in exchange for two Canadians, because that's not how justice works in a free democratic society. Do we need to wise up a little bit? Damn right we do. Look, I, I've been uh, attempting to write an international book about the effects of the communist China right after my books on organized crime in soccer, and I couldn't get any Canadian publisher to take a look at them. They just refused because they said, oh, communist China will become democratic in the next few years. There's a naivety. There's a, a kind of willful stupidity on the part of the Canadian establishment that they're only now that they're being hit across the face with wet fish by our colleagues be it Australian, American, British, New Zealanders saying, wake up. But it's, it's, it's outrageous. It's outrageous that, you know, just after the two Michaels were thrown in jail, along with a number of other innocent Canadians, that a group of Canadian parliamentarians went to Shanghai for a political meeting. Um, you look at the pressure the State Department has brought, the symbolic nature of what the Americans have done to get one of their people out, um, it, it's in stark contrast to the Canadians. And as far as communist China is concerned, we're woefully, woefully naive. I mean, they had these secret police stations operating in downtown Toronto and Vancouver and across the country that mm. interfered explicitly in our elections. Time, time for a wake-up call for the Canadian establishment. Canadian people get it. Canadian establishment, Justin Trudeau and the Conservatives as well, have been woefully naive. Declan Hill, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate talking with you. Thank you. It's always an honor to speak to you and your, your people. Declan Hill is an investigative academic and journalist specializing in the study of organized crime, international issues, and international sport. We're talking about the prisoner exchange between the U.S. and Russia. Brittany Griner, WNBA star for The Merchant of Death, a convicted 
arms dealer who was serving time in a U.S. prison. My question for you, let's go back to the calls at one 1010 Does this put us more at risk? Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And this is Mark Tui with you this afternoon today. I appreciate uh, your time. It's a pleasure talking with you, and I'd like to do some more of it at 1-855-633-1010. The phone lines lit up, and we left a number of people stranded at the top of the show talking about the Brittany Griner uh, prisoner exchange. The United States swapped her, got her back. She's free. Yay for Brittany. Uh, a convicted uh, drug trafficker, I guess, you know, technically. Uh, she was arrested at uh, Moscow's uh, International Airport uh, uh, months and months and months ago, earlier on in this year. She's a WNBA uh, basketball player, professional basketball player from the United States. In the offseason, she plays for a Russian team, which pays her apparently five times more than the WNBA team she plays for. Uh, but uh, so you can understand the appeal. But in the United States and other places where it's legal, she uses a vape with cannabis oil, apparently, and she is alleged to have left that in her bags where it was found by border guards at the uh, Russian airport. And she was arrested. She was convicted. She pled guilty, uh, although there is some doubt about whether she actually had it or whether there's a lot of uh, theories that this was placed there in order to get for the Russians a high-profile prisoner that they could use specifically for the purpose of trading her for somebody that they wanted back uh, from the United States. She pled guilty. I'm not reading uh, that as necessarily meaning she was guilty. She might very well have been advised in the Russian legal system, the only way you can hope to avoid life imprisonment is to plead guilty. And she was convicted and sentenced to, uh, you know, a decade, I think, in a Russian prison camp. She's free today because the Americans agreed to swap her for Victor Buk, the <laughs> He's an international arms dealer serving time in a U.S. prison after being convicted, known internationally as the Merchant of Death. So he is back in Russia now. Uh, Brittany Griner is back in the United States. My question for you at 855-633-1010 is, does this make you and I more at risk if we were to travel to places like Russia and China? Did we set a bad precedent? Did the United States set a bad precedent by bargaining for her freedom? She's a very sympathetic character. Her crime in Canada would be not a crime. Well, actually, it would be. Traveling through an airport with that type of stuff is still illegal. But, uh, you know, it would be a minor offense here. It's a major offense there. Trading her for an international arms dealer, we've talked with you. Most of you said it was a bad deal uh, for the United States. But does it put us more at risk as citizens of countries who now have set a precedent that we are willing to trade for the freedom of our citizens. I'd love to know, one 1010 because I think what it has told governments like Russia's, governments like China's, is that if you arrest an innocent Canadian or an American, uh, you can do that because you need some hostages to trade for the bad people that get arrested here that you want back in your country. Let me know, 855-633-1010. Daryl 
does this put us more at risk, do you think? I think it puts us way more at risk. Um, you know, it, it, it was a terribly bad deal. But the one thing that really appalls me is is the fact that they traded off a basketball star that may or may not have been guilty for the so-called merchant of death. And I think the question we all need to ask ourselves is, like, what if this guy reactivates his network? How many other people are now at risk, not just Canadians, but around the world from an illicit arms dealer, especially given the level of violence in a lot of third world countries these days? And no one even seems to be talking about that. Yeah, no, this is not a good guy, and one can only assume he's going to go back to doing bad things. Exactly. And, And yet, you know, one basketball start, or potentially who knows, what this dude could unleash again if he reactivates his former network. Now, one of the reasons why Canada didn't get its uh, two Michaels back is because we refused to play ball with China. Eventually, uh, you know, we passed the uh, Chinese woman, uh, I'm trying to remember her name, Meng Wanzhou, anyway, Uh, she was was handed over to the United States as part of an extradition. The Americans gave her to China and we got our Canadians back. Do you think Canada needs to set aside some of its idealistic democratic principles and maybe recognize that this is a tough, mean world and do more for our Canadian citizens abroad? Well, that's a hard one to call, right? Like, I'm sure that the Canadian government probably did want to hand her over. However, at what cost, given who was running the United States at the time, guys? It's not as simple as everyone thinks it is. That's true. So, like, if, if we had done that after basically Trump, okay, disallowed. So then what happens, right? You can't win. You let them go, and next thing you know, uh, we've got stuff happening where we're losing jobs, we're losing industry. Who knows, right? You're renegotiating things like the free trade deal. So it's not as simple, I think, as a lot of people think these things are. I think you're probably right about that. Thanks very much, Daryl. I appreciate your call. So yeah, so two questions for you at 855-633-1010. Do you think we're more at risk when our governments set the precedent that they're willing to negotiate to trade tit-for-tat prisoner swaps? Are you more likely to get arrested for nothing when you travel to one of these, uh, these foreign countries with questionable justice regimes? On the other hand, do you want the Canadian government to be a little bit more hard-hearted and pragmatic and be willing to do for you when you get in trouble overseas what the Americans were willing to do for Brittany uh, Griner? Howard in Montreal, what's your take? Hi, well, I, I was thinking about it. I have kind of two directions. One, if she actually did cross that border knowingly, or even if she forgot something in her bag and, and, and oh, they found it, well, you, you don't, she, that's her problem, that's her mistake, especially in a place like Russia where they treat that stuff very severely. When if, in Rome. However, she was, exactly. If, however, she was set up by them, um, I think you've got to take into consideration what country you're going into. And as you say, how do they abuse their power? And, you know, how, how fair are they? Are they appropriate? Are they going to set you up? If you go to a place like Russia, you always got to have that grain of salt going, you know, there's a possibility something screwy may happen if it does. I'm screwed. There's nothing I can do. This is not the place to, to look for justice and, and people's rights. And No, they do whatever the heck they want there. And if you get caught up in that web, you are uh, in, a, in a bad way. Do you think the Canadian government takes an aggressive enough approach to protecting the interests of our, its citizens abroad? 
I don't know how much how much of an aggressive approach they can take trying to protect their citizens when their citizens go to that country. I mean, I, I, I hear you. They can do all the diplomatic jumping through hoops they want to, but if Russia's not interested in, in cooperating and holding someone ransom for a prisoner, there's not a whole lot that Canada can do, do especially think, now considering the Ukraine situation, right? There's do you think, Howard, of, we should at least advise Canadians not to travel to these places? Because throughout the two Michaels episode, we never said that about China. Absolutely, people should be warned and know, hey, you know, you're not going to a place that, that conducts itself the way you're used to in, in terms of fairness and, and righteousness, et cetera, et cetera. You're going, you're, you're going to a place like that, you're taking your life into your hands in many different ways. I agree uh, with that. Thanks very much, Howard. I appreciate your call. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, I do think that when you negotiate with terrorists, uh, you know, you put yourself at risk. When you negotiate with governments that don't have the rule of law, that is separate and sacrosanct from the political interests like we have, well, you know, you're putting yourself at risk. And when you negotiate with countries for prisoner exchanges, you actually make it more likely that your citizens will be taken prisoner expressly for the purpose of creating a hostage that they can trade for something. And, and I don't really want to live in a country that does the same as a tit-for-tat thing, but on the other hand, I know that we do negotiate with terrorists. We do it all the time. That's how we resolve things. And so, yeah, it's a very complicated world that we live in. There's no easy answers. Uh, when we come back, who killed the key change in popular music? Now, bear with me because I saw this headline. I thought that's vaguely interesting, but I really don't care much about music. But when I started getting into this, I started saying to myself, oh, my God, this is fascinating. And I had no idea. And it is an, an, an absolutely brilliant examination of how music that you and I listen to all the time, that we stream, that we love, has changed. The actual music has changed because of the technology that makes it. Music expert Eric Elper, next. Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, welcome back. It is Mark Tui with you today. Thanks for uh, talking with me. It is always a pleasure. Every once in a while, I like to challenge myself to read something that I probably wouldn't otherwise read. And this happened not that long ago. A newsletter called Tedium had an article about music. And while I enjoy listening to music, but I'm not a music expert, I probably can't tell you the names of the bands or the or the artists that are playing the music that I like best unless I've downloaded it and happen to know it. Uh, but this article caught my eye because, well, it talked about death. Uh, the headline is called The Death of the Key Change. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting, but probably boring. It's in a newsletter called Tedium. How fascinating can it be? Well, as I got into it, even I was fascinated about this. Uh, and the, the, the quick take on this is uh, this guy has gone through and decided he was going to listen to every number one song in the history of the Billboard Hot 100, 1,143 songs released between 1958 and 2022. He decided he would listen to one song a day. It was going to take him years. But one of the things that he noted was that throughout the history of pop music, 
there were some things happening with the keys of the music, and some of it was related to the instrument that was playing. And then he noted that when rap happened, a lot of the keys changed that became popular. But the most notable thing was that the idea of changing key in the middle of a piece of music has almost disappeared. It used to be a common dramatic element. Uh, one example that stands out is Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson. And one of the reasons why the song is catchy is that the key changes from G major to G sharp major uh, at around at this point adds some drama. So it calls our attention to a little, it injects a little bit of drama. But apparently in the 2010s, the key change all but disappeared in uh, popular music. Why? Well, it turns out technology might be to blame. Eric Alper, publicist, music expert, and radio host is the keeper of all knowledge when it comes to music. Uh, Eric, what killed the key change? Isn't it amazing to know that you just read something that you didn't know about that completely manipulates your feelings and now you feel that much smarter about it? I, I love that. I love that intro because, look, I'm a musicolic. I love it. But until I start to think about these things, I don't know that I'm being manipulated. My favorite songs like Penny Lane by the Beatles or You'll Be in My Heart by Phil Collins all have that massive keychain at the end of it, making your heart soar and your vocals louder. If you're a fan of Bon Jovi, you know his songs all have the keychains at the end. Um, Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. It's that big finish. And I think part of the reason why it's changed is because it's a lot of these artists today think it's a cheap ploy to get an emotional response when they're more authentic, they're more real. Hip hop has taken the center stage in the music industry. So those emotional ballads that we used to grow up listening to in the 80s and 90s are no longer there. Now it's really about the mood of a song. In fact, the one song that that he mentions in this article, Sickle Mode, um, is one of the few that has a key change. And there's a very, very good reason why um, why Travis Scott ended up having it in there. Let's have a listen to that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gone on you with the pick and roll. Young flame here in sickle mode. This here with all the ice on in the booth at the gate outside. When they pull up, they give me loose. Yeah, jump out, boys. That's Nike boys hopping out. Eric Alper, I found it fascinating when he started talking in this article on Tedium about yeah. the way that music is put together, the way it's assembled now using technology changes uh, the way that uh, producers and artists think about how their music. And that's part of the reason why the key change is no longer as important. For sure. And in that song that you just played, um, there's a different key for Travis. And then there's a different key for Drake. And we're supposed to feel something different for Drake than Travis. So it's all connected to the personality of the song, too. The way that songs are being written now, where, you know, something like rhythm and texture is more important than 
a, a, a guitarist playing a wicked solo or chords in a song. Part of that is maybe a lack of music education that is in the public school system. The other part of that is that using technology, I could be in the basement of my house and create a song using every instrument possible at the flip of a button and so the ability for that music sophistication has changed a lot where you're going now for the barren notes there are not a lot of instruments in the top hits today when it comes to hip-hop but there's a very good reason for it it's just that the audience doesn't really care for those big songs that whitney houston or michael jackson used to do or celine dion they have no interest in that yeah, it's interesting. And the, the layout of a screen on a computer when you're working with audio files, I've never produced yeah. music, but I have edited audio and multi-track audio. And it's a very vertical construct where you're looking right. at you all the different it. tracks and you're lining them up. And he's suggesting that, that just that format change makes the key change less important. Because you can also make that key change perfect using computers. Before, you would have had to find a singer who can sing those high notes. You can, you needed to find a guitarist or a brass section that could actually perform that. And that stuff is really expensive if you're hiring it out. Now, with, with you know just a simple move of the mouse, you can make those key changes happening without speeding up the music like you used to using samples. So so, um, you know, I think we should just get used to the fact that if you like the first 15 seconds of a song right now that's new, you'll probably like the whole song because it's not going to change very much in terms of mood and texture and speed and now finally key changes. That's fascinating because I once heard somebody say that they could recognize a top 40 hit in the first uh, bar and a half. And, right, uh, and right. <laughs> that sounds and now like you've it's true. <laughs> And now you've understood TikTok, right? <laughs> like, not, like nothing happens in a vacuum. So when artists start to do this, moving away from the big music and the hair bands and the ballads of the 80s, 30 years later, slowly, you have something like TikTok, where if you like, you know, the first batch of video that you watch that are a couple of seconds, um, you might be more apt to stream it on your music streaming service or watch the video on YouTube. And people don't want something that they don't know what it is. It's really hard to get somebody to listen to three and a half minutes worth of music of a song that they don't already know. But if I can sell you on the 10 seconds of the beginning of the song and you like it, chances are I might be able to get you to listen to the whole thing over and over again if, you know, if I don't, if I don't move from that mark. Eric Elper, I always appreciate your insight on all things music. Oh, happy to do it, Mark. And we'll talk soon. Eric is a publicist, music expert, radio host, uh, our go-to guy whenever we want to talk music. You can find this article that I'm talking about on a uh, website called Tedium. And the article is called The Death of the Key Change. We're going to take a short break when News Talk Today returns. Scott Reed joins us for Overplayed and Underhyped, or vice versa, actually. There you go. Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 
My name is Mark Tui. It's a pleasure to talk with you. And, uh, well, coming up right now, Scott. Overhyped. Great jobs and opportunity. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or underplayed. Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator, former communication director for Prime Minister Paul Martin. We are playing overhyped versus underplayed. Let's start with uh, news today that Brittany Griner, WNBA uh, basketball uh, player, has been released from Russia in exchange for the Merchant of Death. Overplayed or underhyped? Uh, well, I, I think the merchant of death aspect of it is overhyped. Look, I don't think you can underplay a story about the release of what's effectively a political prisoner, which is what happens when you're dealing with Russia or what happens when you're dealing with, you know, say a hostile nation like China, which obviously the two Michaels, um, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, in 2000 and I'm going to say it was four, might've been 2005. I go with prime minister Martin to Russia. We're on a state visit. Uh, diplomatically, we have agreed in advance that when we meet with the prime minister, we're going to meet with Putin the next day. But in the first meeting in the evening, we're having a dinner with the prime minister of Russia. And we've agreed diplomatically to an agenda, which includes that at the outset, we will raise an objection about a couple of political prisoners, ask for their release. And then we will raise an objection about something called the Aerostar Hotel, which Russia had taken by force. Just a bunch of, bunch of criminals, right? More or less Putin uh, approved criminals walked in and said, hey, you Canadians, you don't own this hotel anymore. Now we own it. And so we raised those issues thinking that diplomatically it had been agreed to and they acknowledged it. And there was a notion that on a couple of the issues, there might be some workout. Instead, the Russian prime minister, who was visibly in the bag from having drank vodka all afternoon, started yelling and screaming and stood. And he was literally the Russian bear. This man was about six foot three and weighed about 240 pounds. And uh, it got off to a very, very unpleasant and ugly start. The reason I tell this story is dealing with Russia, who does not adhere to the rule of law when it comes to these things, who will grab uh, people and hold them for political purposes. Do not assume that it is easy. Do not assume it is rational. Do not assume assume that you can get away with getting the people back that you care for without having to pay a steep price. So anybody who's second guessing Joe Biden today, I say think again. So for that reason, I would say you can never underplay the significance of this. It's hard to deal with these lunatics on lunatic issues. How do you make that decision? I mean, you've uh, you maybe have not have made this type of decision, but I mean, the government has to balance. On the one hand, we want to do what we can to protect our citizens and act in their best interests. But on the other hand, you know, if you start pray, you know, playing hostage uh, trading scenarios, that kind of opens the door for more hostages to be taken. Yeah, it's a very dangerous game. And so you you have to be extremely careful. So the first is you have to know who the person on the other side of the table is. What sort of nation state are you dealing with? Are you dealing with, um, I mean, when you're dealing with Al-Qaeda, you really genuinely were encouraging them uh, to continue to kidnap people. If you're dealing with a nation state, it might be slightly different. You have to understand them. So that's the first piece. Second piece is you have to find out whether or not they're playing poker or whether they just want to hold the that person so they're playing poker then you got to figure out how what what's the price of the pot um you know and in this case you notice that uh the biden administration initially bid hey you know what uh we'll give you back this crazy arm dealer uh monster guy if you give us both of the americans and they uh didn't go for that so you wait a little bit of time you see whether or not that will play and if it doesn't then you have to fold your hand and say all right we'll give you one one and one 
and live to fight another day for the other fellows. So there's a variety of things. There are people that are expert in this internationally. But I think the first and most important thing is, are you dealing with a rational actor on the other side? It's a nation state that's doing it for geopolitical muscle flexing purposes. Or are you dealing with effectively an international terrorist group that will only learn the lesson that we will take more if you give us something in return? Uh, this one uh, I kind of threw at you uh, late. This is uh, the New York Times, uh, amongst other uh, major uh, international news outlets, reporting that uh, German uh, special forces and uh, and police, 3,000 of them, executed 150 uh, raids uh, on Wednesday, uh, arresting 25 people suspected of a conspiracy to storm the German capital, this starts to sound familiar, uh, to arrest lawmakers and execute the chancellor. A prince uh, descended from German nobility would take over as the new head of state, and a former far-right member of parliament would be put in charge of a national purge. They had very detailed plans, uh, Scott, to uh, disrupt the uh, electricity network, to shut down satellite communications. They had a list of 18 names of politicians considered enemies of the state to be deported or executed. Uh, the New York Times is linking this to sort of an international pattern of behavior of uh, far-right extremists looking to take over. Uh, are they overplaying that or is this underhyped? I think we can fall into the trap of overhyping this stuff, but you know, I do think there's a pattern here. I do think there's obviously there are parallels, whether it's with convoy, you know, demanding that they're going to usurp the democratically elected government and uh, you know replace it uh, with uh, some other you know bizarre uh, form of government. Um, obviously, the January six uh, charges. I just think we, we like. It would be foolish to ignore the parallels. It would be foolish to ignore the growing um, normalization of far-right groups who are bent on using force in order to topple democratic elected governments. But I think it would be overhyping it to read too much into it and to say that this is an imminent threat. I mean, usually, um, I take these lunatics seriously but usually they're lunatics i mean usually like the you know that portion of the convoy that said yeah we're going to meet with the senate and the governor general and we're going to you know we're going to we're going to get rid of the government like they actually thought that that was a reasonable proposal so you're not dealing with rational uh characters and as a consequence unless they resort to violence their likelihood of succeeding in any way shape or form is nil so i, I just think we got to be careful about saying my god this is you know imminent it's going to happen around the corner all the time but we also have to be vigilant because you know uh crazy's becoming normal man and uh that's a bad place to be speaking of crazy i'll allow you to connect the dots if you so choose alberta passed uh, its sovereignty act uh, through the legislature at uh, but not not until they had stripped out uh, the granting of uh, special executive powers uh, to cabinet you're Man, it drives me bananas. Well, uh, what? So, a couple of things. Um, first, I love that they 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 said, "Okay, well, we want to be reasonable. We'll, we'll we'll put some water in our wine. We'll remove our ability to undemocratically uh, recreate laws by fiat through the cabinet." Uh, you know, in contradiction to the Westminster model, it's been in existence for over six hundred years. Uh, great. Okay, that's great. So your bill used to be unconstitutional whack and undemocratic now it's just unconstitutional and whack but you know the, the thing i would really emphasize mark more than anything else um the fact that daniel smith ran on this as an issue uh, ran her leadership on it 
It was her first bill. It was the cornerstone of her throne speech. She's made this number one centerpiece of her agenda. And then she got it wrong. You know, I mean, it was so badly done that she had to pull it back and redo it on day one. And I'll tell you, people um, don't like bad ideas, but they really don't like incompetence. And if they feel that their government doesn't, even if they like a crazy idea, but if they feel that the government doesn't have the fundamental competence to execute, they will punish. And I think that's 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 the real harm here. And I also think that every day she's talking about this, she's not talking about bread and butter economic issues, which are what is dominating and concerning Alberta voters. So she better get herself back on track, focusing on bread and butter economic issues around the table. Yeah, take your opportunity to kick the hell out of Ottawa. That's always good politics in Alberta and elsewhere. But, you know, I think she's got the balance all wrong and she just looks incompetent. And that is the real kryptonite of politics. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if she can pivot, and uh, if so, where she pivots to. Uh, Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator, former communication director for Prime Minister Paul Martin. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, sir. See you soon. Scott Reed joins uh, News Talk Today Weekly for overhyped versus underplayed. When we come back, my goodness, if it is safe to do so, take your hand. Slide it into your pocket. Feel around. What do you got in there? Well, it's about to change. There are major changes coming to pockets in your pants. Next on News Talk Today. Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. So what have you got in your pants pocket right now? Or if you're a woman, maybe in your change purse. Got any coins in there? Got any toonies in there? Well, coming to a pants pocket near you soon will be some major changes. The Royal Canadian Mint announced yesterday that it will be minting and issuing and circulating a brand new commemorative toonie, a $2 coin, where the normal toonie has uh, the photograph of the queen, Queen Elizabeth II, on the uh, face of it, surrounded uh, by a silver, I'm not sure what it's called, an annulus, uh, a circle. Anyway, it's two colors. It's sort of a gold center, silver on the outside, but they're going to issue a special commemorative coin with the queen's image uh, as usual in the center, but instead of the silver bit in the outside, they're going to make that black, a black uh, metal, like an armband, as if it was in mourning. The black ringed toonie, the mourning toonie, uh, they're going to print uh, or issue up to 5 million of the coins uh, and begin circulating them this month. They will appear in your change as banks restock their coin inventories. Uh, and uh, my question is, will you go out of your way to get one of these things and to set it aside, perhaps, as a collectible? I remember uh, getting from my mother uh, a bunch of, uh, I had the old, uh, I had a centennial dollar bill, 
that she set aside in 1967, said we'll all just tuck it into a book and then give that to the kids later. Uh, likewise, I think I have a copy or I have a $2 bill before it was taken out of circulation. And uh, when there were major changes, uh, she set aside uh, different uh, iterations of uh, our currency for us to collect. Will these be worth anything? Are you going to corner the market on black armband tunies? Uh, here to help us understand what, if anything, the value of these coins will be, my guest is Stephen Woodland, president of the Royal Canadian Numismatic Association and producer Samantha Pope has put in here kindly for me in case I didn't know what numismatics means. The study of a collection, study or collection of currency, including coins, tokens, paper money, metals, and related objects. I knew that already. So there you go. But in case you didn't, that's what it means. Stephen Woodland, welcome to News Talk today. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So this uh, coin, I guess, is this the first uh, sort of commemorative issue from the Royal Canadian Mint regarding the passing of Queen Elizabeth II? This really isn't a commemorative, but it's certainly one that show that is issued differently from the rest of the coinage, as you mentioned. The ring is black as opposed to silver or nickel-colored, and the core is the same as the regular tunic. So, like, collectors like to set aside and keep things that either are different or significant or they expect in the future might hold some value. Is this going to be scooped up by coin collectors? This is going to be scooped up by collectors, but also it's going to be picked up by those people who like Elizabeth and royal uh items. Uh, at the Royal Canadian Mint Boutique yesterday here in Ottawa, the crowd of people waiting to get their commemorative tunies was out the door. And the excitement was high. People were looking forward to seeing the new coin and getting their, uh, getting their samples. So it was, uh, it's really interesting to see how people have come out and want to have the last coin that will be issued with Elizabeth's effigy on it. Now, coins in Canada are uh, issued by the Royal Canadian Mint. Banknotes are issued by the Bank of Canada. And the business model behind both of those versions of currency are quite different. The Mint makes money on coinage. Given that a lot of people might never spend these, they might just get one and put it in a drawer somewhere to keep for future sort of admiration. Is this a moneymaker for the Mint? All coinage is moneymaker for the government of Canada. Um, the uh, the mint uh, does it, it issues money, and of course, it doesn't cost as much money to uh, create and distribute the coins as it uh, as the coins are worth. So that's how the the mint makes money. They love it, or at least the government loves it, and the Minister of Finance, who is responsible for the mint. Uh, loves it when collectors go out and put those coins away because it just means they have to make more and they get more uh, seigneurage off the coins. Yeah, and, and if the coins are never used to, if they never come back to the source to be exchanged for some value, I mean, you know, if, if one million out of five million coins end up in sock drawers, uh, that's that's good business. It's good business because it means that the mint has to strike more coins to make up for uh, that one million coins that are sitting in those sock drawers and treasure chests 
at home or hand it off to the kids. Uh, that uh, so they have to make more coins and uh, they earn more seniorage off the manufacture and distribution of those additional coins. So Stephen Woodland uh, of the Royal Canadian Numismatic Association, this is a coin that is going to be in general circulation. They're going to make five million. They said they might mint more if there's a market demand. Is this a coin that in the future we could expect to be worth more than two dollars? Given that there are going to be at least 5 million coins distributed across the country, uh, I don't see that they're going to gain any significant value, but they will have a tremendous sentimental value for those people who are royalists and like to collect uh, those things related to the royal family, particularly of Elizabeth. Uh, Yesterday, the conversation around the boutique was all about You know, I'm really excited about getting yet one more coin related to Elizabeth and the fact that it was a special coin, that it's unique in comparison to other circulation coins. Everyone was excited. And then they were also talking about getting the first coins of Charles III, which will be coming out next year. So uh, lots of excitement about the changes in our coinage uh, that are happening if I in wanted these closing to, days, if I wanted to collect, if I wanted to collect a coin, either of the late Queen or the new King, what do you know that's coming from the Royal Canadian Mint that might be worth holding on to as something that could appreciate in value? Well, I'll be honest with you, I know no more than the average person <laughs> on the street, and the Mint is very, very good at keeping secret what is coming out. I heard that this coin was coming out uh, on Monday, and all I knew was that there was a new coin coming. No description of it, nothing, until I got to the boutique yesterday and saw it. So very good at secret keeping at the Royal Canadian Mint. Uh, Well, they should take over the management of information for a few other departments I could name. (laughs) Stephen Woodland, uh, President of the Royal Canadian Numismatic Association, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. You're more than welcome. Have a great day. The uh, Mint makes a lot of money, literally and figuratively. Uh, They make uh, coins for not only the Canadian government, but a whole series of different types of collectibles, as well as governments of other countries. And the the business model behind coinage is different. They buy and sell coins, uh, whereas the Bank of Canada issues banknotes that basically represent sort of value that can be exchanged. They're promissory notes uh, in, you know, you know, if you think of it that way, promise to pay X number of dollars in some kind of exchangeable value. But coins have to be bought uh, by banks from the mint. And so it's an interesting business model. But uh, yeah, I'll certainly, I don't think I'll go, I certainly won't order, order from the mint any of these new coins. But I will look for one in my change and or maybe if I'm in a bank, ask for one or two and uh, probably set them aside for my kids just as a souvenir. Not expecting it to increase in value unless, of course, they make a mistake in it. And one can only hope that they print the queen's face backwards or upside down because then they'll be worth a fortune. When we come back to news talk today, it is uh, time. Well, you know, have you ever slept at work? I'm not sleeping now, but I have slept at work. I'll tell you how. And guess who else is a big work sleeper? 
News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui. Pleasure to talk with you uh, today. I really enjoy our conversation, and I'd love to continue it. Let's uh, get in touch at 855-633-1010. Have you ever slept at work? Do you do that on a regular basis? I have slept at work. I think a lot of people have, depending on what kind of job you have and where you work and uh, what the facilities are. But I have uh, worked so late that I took a cat oh, nap. Yeah, there. that's uh, Tony Tedesco sleeping right now. Oh. <laughs> uh, have you ever slept at work? Elon Musk sleeps at work all the time. Let me know, one 855 I'd love to know if you've ever slept at work. If And if so, what were the circumstances? Where were you working? What were you doing that required you to be there uh, during your normal sleep time? Did you bed down on the floor underneath a desk? Did you sleep in the corner of a factory floor? Did you sleep next to the equipment? Did you sleep in your car if you're a driver? Or did your company set aside bedrooms in the office tower so that you could have some sleep? The situation that Elon Musk finds himself in, he's in uh, another little battle with the uh, city of San Francisco after uh, he said that, you know, he was sleeping at work and would uh, continue to do so at Twitter until he fixed the company. Uh, He uh, talked to somebody, one of his staffers, uh, a woman manager there said uh, they're working so hard she uh, tweeted a photo of her sleeping on the floor of what looked to be a meeting room, uh, tweeting, when your team is pushing round the clock to make deadlines, sometimes you hashtag sleep where you work. Have you ever slept where you work? Uh, let me know, one 855 A picture of her on the floor wrapped in a sleeping bag. Uh, she, uh, Elon Musk is quite proud of the fact that he slept, not only is sleeping at Twitter right now, but he previously slept on the floor at Tesla. And he says, you know, this isn't because I couldn't afford to or didn't have time to go across the road and be at the hotel, uh, but it was because I wanted my circumstance to be worse than anyone else at the company on purpose. He saw that as leadership. If he was going to push people to work long hours, then uh, he was going to stay there and be there working long hours, and he was going to sleep in very austere conditions. And uh, this is not that unusual. I know working in political offices, when I went to City Hall, all the political offices had couches in them. Not all of them had been used the way some uh, former counselors had used their couches, but uh, it was not uncommon because political staffers are usually very junior, very young, very underpaid. Uh, they're very overworked. And uh, especially when council works, you know, till late at night, and then you've got to be up early in the morning and back in the office, just sort of bedding down on the couch or in the corner uh, was, uh, was not something that was particularly unusual. Have you ever slept at work? And what were the conditions, the circumstances? I don't think this is strange. 855-633-1010. Why it makes the news is that the San Francisco Department of Building Inspection said it is going to inspect uh, Twitter's headquarters because Elon Musk has said that he's converting some of the empty offices because A, they were working from home before B, he bought the company and then fired half the people there. Uh, They have extra space. He's converted them into modest bedrooms with, uh, you know, beds, mattresses, 
uh, and uh, in the kind of place, you know, closets where you can spend the night and not have to sleep on the floor. You can sleep on a mattress. Uh, the city's building department says that might violate uh, building codes. And so they're going to have a look. And the ongoing battle of Elon Musk versus the world uh, continues. Uh, Daniel in Toronto, have you ever slept at work? I haven't, but I have a friend of mine who's a paramedic in New York City, and he has said that during some long shifts, he has uh, taken a nap on the stretcher in the back of the ambulance. Yeah, well, that's actually a good point, because firemen in uh, Toronto, anyway, they work a 24-hour shift, and so if they're not out on a call at night, they're asleep at work. There's beds for them there. Right, no. So my friend, he has a 10- or 12-hour shift, and he just spends the whole thing in an ambulance, usually parked by some street corner or something. You know, waiting for a uh, call to come in. And, you know, I mean, if it's 1 a.m. and you're waiting in an ambulance, why not take a nap until a call comes in? Yeah, absolutely. As long as you wake up when the call comes in, you don't have a problem with that. I'm all for that. Thanks very much, uh, Daniel. Uh, Roger in Aurora, Ontario, have you ever slept at work? No, I have not. But uh, I have a friend who's a funeral director, and they had a very busy time. They had what they called an embalmathon. And he slept overnight at the funeral home because it was so busy. An embalmathon. Yes. That's an awesome new word that I just learned today. There you go. Where did he sleep? I mean, presumably, if there's an embalmathon, all of the gurneys uh, would be occupied by bodies being embalmed. So where did he no, bed down? He was upstairs in the office. Okay. On couch. Interesting. And he was alone in the funeral home all night. Yeah, but I, I don't imagine that's as creepy for him as it might be for me or some of our listeners. Absolutely. I yeah. agree. Thanks very much. Uh, I appreciate your call. John in Toronto, have you ever slept at work? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, I was part of an emergency crew um, working on a heating system for a double uh, building complex, which in the middle of winter shut down and drained, and we were there for three days, so we couldn't leave. There were a crew of six, and we had to take shifts three and three, and uh, work for 12, 13 hours, catch a nap in our truck for a few hours. Oh, interesting. I'm sorry, I'm losing you uh, there, John, but uh, I appreciate uh, your call. Let's go to Nancy in Brampton. Have you ever slept at work, Nancy? Yes, I did. I slept at work at our company that I worked for for eight months. And why? Because it was a rehab uh, place in... It was in Quebec. Instead of going home all the time, I just slept there. And did you have clients that were, like, overnight? Was it residential rehab type thing? Yeah, yeah. residential rehab and it, stuff like this. Excellent. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. Pablo, have you slept at work? I do it quite regularly. I usually go to work Sunday night, and are, I leave Friday night or Saturday morning. Are you work. supposed to sleep at work, or...? Uh, well, yeah, I'm a truck driver, so okay. my office is my home for the week and sometimes longer. Now, do you have, uh, like, a sleeper cab? Yes, I've got a sleeper berth, and uh, I've got my TV, my printer, uh, microwave, toaster oven, all my little amenities, and uh, away I go. I've I've never been in one of those, but I've seen some pictures. Some of them are pretty luxe. Yes, I know a few guys, we call them, uh, they're super bunks. So they'll have a uh, washroom, shower, small kitchenette, and covered space, and, uh, you know, good-sized bed, uh, like a queen-size or something like that. And those guys are generally on the road 300-plus days a year. You know, I'm anywhere between 200, 250 days of the, uh, of the year on the road. 
uh, outside of GTA. I do quite a bit of local work when there's no work outside of GTA. So those days I usually just stay in the yard uh, rather than commute home. I commute a two-hour drive. So it's just cheaper and easier for me because my starts are very early. Yeah, I imagine. And, and uh, I just stay in the yard. Thanks. You know, FaceTime with the kids at night and see them on the weekends. What do you think of the idea of Elon Musk converting some unused office space into uh, bedrooms for people who Makes have to work long shifts? Because I bet you half his workforce is over an hour commute probably to the office. Yeah, I would you imagine. Know? You work a long day, last thing you want to do is spend another two hours in traffic battling home just to turn around and come back a few hours later. Thanks, Pablo. I appreciate that. Yeah, good points. Uh, some people on the uh, text board uh, saying, I slept in a trailer. I was unloading for uh, a, uh, uh, I guess, a retail company back in 1999. That's what they get for seven and a quarter an hour. Uh, somebody else points out, sleeping at work is a massive red flag that A, a company is overworking their employees, and B, doesn't have a sustainable business model. That's it. Unless you're emergency services, there's no excuse. I disagree with that, depending. Uh, sometimes every business, every organization has peak crush load times. When the work has to get done, you're working on a project 24-7, you're pushing it hard, and uh, and people, it might be convenient to sleep at work. If it is uh, an everyday thing, yeah, then I would agree with you that uh, perhaps they need more staff. But uh, there you go. I don't have a problem with Elon Musk doing this. I do understand the city's concerns because, you know, frankly, converting office space into residential space is financially problematic for cities. We'll talk about that some other time. Uh, you are listening to News Talk today. My name is Mark Tui. We'll be back with Risking It All. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui. Thanks for listening along. This story got me concerned. Somebody is coming for my Y chromosome. We better ask Dan. It's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. This is, it's a dream, man. The headline is Risking It All. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. Is this... Special all-sex chromosome edition of Risking It All because this... It's like the most, it's the most exciting thing. Like, we're going to talk about sex. Everybody's like, yes, chromosomes. Ah. Oh. <laughs> but, I mean, the headline on this, the Y chromosome is slowly vanishing. Men need to come up with a new sex gene. Oh, my God, the future of humanity. First of all, let's get down to some basics. Dan Riskin, CTV science and technology specialist. I've heard about the X and the Y chromosomes right. my entire life. I learned a little bit later about genes. What's the difference between a okay, chromosome so and a gene? You, so a, a gene is a little bit of DNA that, that says something. And your DNA is written on these strings that, that you've seen, like the double helix thing. And our, our DNA in our bodies is on really, really long strings, and they're called chromosomes. And, and that's, that's it. And we have, each of us has 46 of these things that we carry in every single cell. There are 46 strings of DNA that we 
carry around. We got 23 from mom and 23 from dad. And most of them are just copies of each other. Like there's chromosome one and you have a copy from mom and a copy from dad and they both live in your cells. And then you have a chromosome two, you got a copy from mom, a copy from dad. And they're all the same right down until you get to the last one. So 22 of them are just identical, the mom and the dad versions. But when it comes to the sex chromosomes, you got, uh, depending on your biological sex, if you're a female, you got an X from your mom and you got an X from your dad and you have the genotype XX. But if you're a boy, you got an X from your mom and you got a Y from your dad and your XY. And so this is kind of weird and it seems strange, but it's it's a very good system because whenever a new baby shows up in the world, they always get an X from mom because she has two X's. So she rolls the dice, picks one, gives it to the new baby. They get an X from mom and then dad has an X and a Y and they roll the dice, flip a coin, whatever you want to call it. And they give one of those. And if they give an X, then they have a daughter. And if they give a Y, they have a son and the son will be XY and the daughter will be XX. And so it continues. And what makes these genes interesting, or sorry, these chromosomes interesting is the X is a big old nice chromosome with lots of interesting stuff in it that do lots of important things. And if they don't work, you might be colorblind, stuff like that. But the Y chromosome is useless. It's like the dumbest little Like short- most men. It is a nice metaphor in many ways, but the Y chromosome is is very small. And all it really has that matters is this one little gene, this one little stretch of the DNA that's called the SRY gene. And basically it's like a light switch that turns on a whole bunch of other things throughout the body. And basically what they like to say is that everybody's born and they're going to be a biological female until the the y chromosome in half of people if they have a y chromosome this sry gene says nope flick the switch and then all of a sudden everything switches over to a male system and so if that never goes off and in some cases you have a a a person with a y chromosome for whom that gene doesn't work they end up looking and seeming like a biological female it's all about that one switch and so um what this latest study shows is just that if you look across other kinds of animals you start to see what can happen if that y chromosome gets smaller and smaller and smaller and then eventually just goes away and this study seems to or other studies perhaps have suggested that in fact the y chromosome is disappearing why is this happening and is this the end of all things Right. Well, I wouldn't get too worked up. Uh, the, the time scale on which this might be disappearing is is one thing to worry about. And then there's also the fact that this is just part of how evolution works. And so it's an interesting thing to think about in terms of the big picture. Um, so the Y chromosome really doesn't have very, it, it can't be that important because no, no females have it, right? And so there can't be things on there that are really important. And anything that is important that's on the X, you're going to get if you're a boy or if you're a girl. So the X is still really important and, and has to have good stuff on it. But the Y it's like, if it's useless, eh, it doesn't really matter, right? Because it, you're, you're going to get everything you need from that X chromosome you got from your mom anyway. The thing you got from your dad, that piddly little Y chromosome, doesn't really matter. Except for that switch that makes you into a boy, which uh, a lot of people hold near and dear. Um, but if you look over the last 150 million years, it's been shrinking. It's it, Less and less important stuff has been on there, and it's been getting smaller, and, and they think it could disappear. And what motivates this latest headline is that they found a rat on an island of Japan. <laughs> this is like awesome. It's the Ryukyu spiny rat. You've never heard of it. And it's just this tiny little rat. It's a cute little thing. 
not like a rat that you get in your house, but like a cute little forest rat that lives on this one tiny island on the the archipelago of islands south of in the southern part of Japan. Just this one little place. But if you look at the chromosomes of that rat, it's lost its Y chromosome altogether. And so the question is, if they could do it, what would happen to us if we lost our Y chromosomes altogether? And so the geneticists basically show that the the switch that SRY gene um, it gets duplicated. Another gene somewhere else on another chromosome takes over that job so that the one thing that the Y chromosome had to do right, it doesn't have to do anymore. And that's when it vanishes. And so now that other chromosome becomes the, the sex chromosome that matters and it's perfectly fine and everything continues and, and life goes on. Is this in any, so we're not, there's no fear that humanity will cease to be able to reproduce where we expect that it'll just shift to another chromosome. Is this at all related to other studies that have showed that testosterone or sperm counts are, are reducing in males sort of across the globe? Yeah, it's a good question. There are studies that do show that, that testosterone, or sorry, that sperm counts have dropped in half in the last 50 years for men around the world, and, and people are trying to figure that out. But this is upstream from that. This is like when the switch gets hit, it, it, it's unlikely that that has anything to do with the size of the Y chromosome. This is probably a separate issue. And again, like the way they've written the headline, it makes it look like males are endangered, and so as a result, our whole species is endangered. But really, uh, over the the they would, they would take millions of years for us to con if if we did lose the y chromosome at the current rates it would have to happen over millions of years and what this basically shows is that evolution is robust against this and it's it's neat because this system of having two different chromosomes for one sex and two of the same chromosome for the other sex shows up in other groups of animals but birds it's backwards in birds it's the female that has two different chromosomes and the male that has two of the same which is really neat and instead of calling them x and y they call them the w and z uh, so that's that's just a neat thing and so there's lots of diversity in terms of what makes the two different sexes and there's lots of diversity within that so once those genes get turned on you get lots of hermaphrodite hermaphrodites you get lots of cases where there's more of a gradient. And this is one of the things that biologists love to point out when people get really worked up about all gender bathrooms and all this stuff and saying, no, sex is the one real thing. There's boys and there's girls and that's the way nature is. It's not. Nature's full of a whole spectrum of different uh, body types. That, and, you know, this is just part of it is this switch that usually turns on all the male genes for some people and doesn't turn on for all for females. But that's just the humans. And that's just most of the time. But among humans, there's variability. And among other animals, there's some animals for which there are no males They're where the females just reproduce on their own. They do. There are lots of lizards. There's some snakes that can reproduce without a male. So there's just a whole it's, it's a beautiful fun okay. in that. Well, that's a very important question. I agree with that question wholeheartedly. Dan Riskin, CDB Science and Technology Specialist, thank you for uh, setting my mind somewhat at ease. You bet. And I will point out, even some of the lizards that can reproduce without a male, they still have sex anyway with other species just to make things fun. Go lizard with other species. Ooh, yeah, well, there's no males of their species. They've disappeared, but they need to have sex in order to ovulate. And so they have sex and then they just reproduce something with their own DNA. The male that they had sex with doesn't get any input at all. He's a member of another species, but they do have to have sex in order to reproduce. Fascinating. Uh, maybe I know. Fascinating. I'm going to let you go <laughs> on that. Uh, thanks very much. I appreciate your time. Dan Riskin, CDB Science it. and Technology Specialist. Thanks to uh, Tony Tedesco. Thanks to Samantha. Thanks to you for listening. I am Mark Tui. You can follow me on Twitter, at Tui. I'll be back tomorrow for Jerry Agard.